Well, uh, my name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics and I should also mention that tonight's lecture is jointly sponsored by the Department of Sociology and I want to welcome you all here to our series on movement, protest and change and indeed I, I hope you've got a, a flyer about the ongoing lectures in the series next term. Well, I can't tell you how delighted I am um, to be able to welcome Francis Fox Piven to the London School of Economics to speak to us today. Um, Professor Piven's hugely influential contribution to debates in the areas of politics and sociology include debates about social movements, about welfare states, about electoral politics, about Labour parties and much else besides and just to give you a flavour of that, I'm just going to run through just some of her multiple publications. So she's written about Regulating the Poor, a book that deals with the uh, function of the welfare state. Uh, perhaps her best-known work, uh, co-authored with Richard Cloward, Poor People's Movement, Movements, discusses um, why they uh, succeed and how they fail. She's written Why Americans Don't Vote, and somewhat uncomfortably, a couple of decades later, why Americans still don't vote. Um, and most recently, following an extraordinary public um, controversy in the United States, she's published Who's Afraid of Francis Fox Piven. We, we had hoped that the bookseller outside uh, would have multiple copies of that, but the bookseller tells us that there's only four copies on the grounds that the recent hurricane has disrupted distribution. So there are four copies if you're interested in purchasing them. Now, this work of Professor Piven has brought her numerous professional accolades, which I think are testimony to her influence and to the esteem in which she's held by her colleagues. And to mention just a few, she's been president of the American Sociological Association, vice president of the American Political Science Association, and not only has she won the Career Award for the Practice of Sociology, awarded by the American Sociological Association, but the Lifetime Achievement Award for Political Sociology. Now, all this would be quite enough um, to uh, recommend her to us today, but in addition to all of this, she has a prodigious commitment to activism, and I think a lifelong commitment to activism. Indeed, I read recently that you'd written that that was the real joy of your life, um, the activism. I, I don't know if that was so. And just to give you a feeling for it, it goes back, um, coming forward from the Great Society period of Lyndon Johnson, um, Francis has been involved in anti-poverty struggles, in the formation of the National Welfare Rights Organisation, in voter registration campaigns, in the American Civil Liberties Union, and, and I, I mention this as well, in the Democratic Socialists of America, an organisation which has its roots uh, in the party led by the great American Labour leader Eugene V. Debs in the early 20th century. Well, our aim in this uh, series was to bring together contributions from eminent scholars and influential activists and in Francis Fox Piven, we have both. Um, it's hard, I think, to imagine a better speaker to have in our series. So I ask you to join me in welcoming Professor Piven. Thank you, Robin. Uh, I'm glad to be here. 
I'm especially honored uh, to be delivering the Miliband Lecture. Ralph Miliband was a friend and a colleague, and I admired him enormously. I want tonight to talk about protest movements, particularly in the United States, but not just in the United States. I think, in fact, we are in the midst of a worldwide protest movement. Now, it's hard to see a movement, I think, when you're in the middle of it, partly because it isn't like the metaphors that we usually use to describe movements. We usually describe movements as there's something like explosions. They're like what in the United States we watch on the 4th of July fireworks. Great starry displays in the sky that then fall to the ground. And all of this happens in one unified arc. But in fact, actual movements don't look like that at all, especially not close up when you are in the middle of them. They arise here with a sputter, and then they catch on somewhere else where they take a somewhat different form. And they spread here and there. And only much later will historians begin to see that this was indeed a protest movement. I say that we are in the middle of a protest movement, a worldwide protest movement. Where is it unfolding? Well, I think it probably began, hard to see the beginning in reality, but it probably began with the conflicts over natural resources in Latin America that resulted in the transformation of the political face of Latin America. It also occurred in the struggles over oil in the Nigerian Delta, and it spread to student movements everywhere, UK Uncut, for example, or more recently the Chilean student movement or the Canadian Quebec student movement that actually won a great deal, fantastic movement. And now there are the European worker strikes over the austerity policies being imposed by international finance and of course the desperation protests of the Greeks has been going on for some time. And then in the United States, well, this current movement, I think maybe it began with the Wisconsin protests against the rollbacks of public sector worker rights in Wisconsin. And they lost, actually. But then... A little more than a year ago, another movement flared up, or was it another movement or the same movement? Hard to know. But a movement flared up called Occupy. It began in a little park north of Wall Street called Zuccotti Park. The occupiers called the park Wall Street. They said that we are occupying Wall Street. And that movement or that protest 
was followed by occupations all over the country, 300 occupations, uh, and it's still going on, even though a lot of people think it's over, but I'll explain later why it's still going on. But Occupy was followed by a Chicago teacher strike, which was remarkable because not only did the teachers show enormous solidarity and all of them went out on strike, but the communities of Chicago lined up behind the teachers and these teachers, these public sector workers, won. They won virtually everything that they were demanding. And now, today, there is a strike of the Port of Oakland Uh, Flight attendants are on strike. Hostess bakery workers are being locked out after threatening a strike. And some people, some observers are saying, mysteriously, that there is a strike revival in the United States now, just now. Well, if we listened to what social social scientists have to say about power. These protests that are occurring would seem hopeless, delusional. Really something like the cargo cults that sprang up among Melanesian islanders Do you remember what you read about the cargo cults? People who inherited a myth that told them that if they burned their crops, a ship-bearing cargo would come into the harbor? Well, the myth was wrong. But I don't think these protesters are wrong. Let me tell you why our dominant theories about power are misleading in this regard. Those dominant theories are largely Weberian theories. I'm not talking about some of the area Foucauldian or Parsonian theories, but theories about conflict and domination. How do we understand conflict and domination? Most of what we think is Weberian. It's about how actor A comes to sway or dominate actor B. How actor A manages to force actor B to conform with actor A's will. Well, what's the answer to that question in social science? Most of the answers are, well, it has to do with the resources that actor A deploys in her interaction with actor B. It has to do with whether actor A can deploy in the incentives that have to do with wealth or employment or prestige or force or institutional position which allows actor A to deploy those kinds of resources, assets, in other words, or attributes. Well, that view of power tells us that power in a society always reflects and reiterates other kinds of hierarchy. That those who are rich have power. Those who have political position have power. Those who control the military have power. That 
way of thinking about power is generally pretty useful most of the time. It's a good bet that the guys who own the factories or the women who own the factories or who have enormous assets in the banks or whatever or the President of the United States can probably work their will most of the time. Most of the time, other people give in. They perform their assigned roles. They work hard. They accept the insults that come from on high. And they look for bits of joy and distraction where they can, or they try to get revenge by cheering their favorite soccer team. That's the way it is most of the time. But some of the time, people refuse. Some of the time, people mob, tear down the houses of the rich. They riot, they loot. They go on strike. They sit in. They occupy schools or factories. And some of the time, less often than they try, but still some of the time, people win. They win something. They win some easing of the terms of their cooperation in social relations. I think we have to explain why people sometimes win. And to explain that, I think we need to think about another kind of power, different from why A has power over B because they have all these lists of attributes and assets that social scientists are forever compiling. I think that other kind of power is deeply rooted in the very nature of social life. Because social life is, in fact, for the most part, a cooperative enterprise. That's how societies do things. And that co-op, they do things through institutions which are networks of cooperation. And that cooperation doesn't work unless everybody performs their assigned role. In fact, we don't have schools without teachers, but we don't have teachers without students. There are no parents without children. There are no rulers without people who agree to be ruled in some sense. We don't have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of women in skirted suits running off to run enterprises on Wall Street or Madison Avenue unless there are domestic workers who come to their homes to care for their children and clean their houses. We have no employers without employees And this is important. We have no lenders without borrowers. I think those cooperative linkages are the key to this other kind of power that sometimes is activated 
and sometimes changes our societies. This other kind of power depends on people withdrawing or refusing to obey the what we may, might consider the elementary norms or rules of institutional life. Traffic rules, for example. That's a lot of what happened in the protests that swept over Latin America. People blocked highways or work rules. That's what happens when workers go on strike or school rules when students boycott their schools. This kind of power is pervasive and people actually do use it in everyday life. You might think of it as Lysistrata power in everyday life. Refusing to perform the role that is expected of you and people find manifold ways of refusing through the foot dragging and sabotage of slaves and vulnerable workers. But the most important kinds of interdependent power, that's what I call this, uh, occurs through the exercise of defiance of normal roles in important political and economic institutions. People use this kind of power in their relations with hairdressers and doctors, but sometimes they use this kind of power in important economic and political relations. Moreover, this kind of power, this interdependent power, uh, in principle, increases as societies become more complex and centralized. That It increases, in other words, with the division of labor. And for that reason, This kind of power, in principle, the potential for this kind of power, increases with globalization. You know, everything you've heard is that globalization suppresses, diminishes the power of workers, right? Because workers are pitted in competition with low-wage workers everywhere. But think about it another way. Globalization involves very complex and fragile exchanges. It involves extended supply and distribution chains. People in isolated villages probably don't have very much power. What they do doesn't affect anybody else outside the village. They can't reach, hit, press the centers of finance, for example. But people who are in these supply chains, everybody in the supply chain has to perform for the supply chain to work. And especially so, by the way, uh, uh, with the introduction of, uh, of, of systems which uh, do not allow for, with just-in-time production, uh, the kind of production that doesn't permit inventories. You know, what it's like is 
old labor organizers used to talk about those workers who had logistical power. And by what they did, they could shut down the whole thing. They might be in the engine of the train or they might be in uh, control the levers of the assembly line. Well, with this ki- these kinds of fragile and extended systems of production and distribution, in a sense, everybody has logistical power. Everybody has interdependent power. In principle. So you might well say, why then is inequality increasing, especially in the United States, in Europe now as well? Why are our societies less democratic? And I think the answer to that has to do with how difficult it is to activate interdependent power and how these new conditions have in a way made useless the old repertoires that people at the bottom called on to activate interdependent power, especially labor power. Think of what you have to do in order to use this potential movement power. Well, first, you have to see it. You have to see that you play an essential role in systems of cooperation and exchange which involve very powerful groups. Now, recognizing it is difficult because you have to recognize it in the face of ruling class definitions that say that workers can easily be replaced, that say that denigrate the kind of work that you do or, the kind, or, the, or denigrate the fact that you don't work. So this recognition problem is a really big problem that activists have always had to solve and it's hard to solve today. The (coughs) Wobblies, who are legendary in American labor history, uh, tried to solve that problem with their songs and uh, their slogans. They sang, you know, it is... We who tilled the prairies built the cities where they reigned. They said, we did it. But they had to say we did it to these loggers and itinerant workers who they were trying to organize because it wasn't self-evident in the face of a culture dominated by people on top. So first recognition. Then, in order to express this kind of movement power, people usually have to be organized. That means you have to coordinate the refusal or the defiance among many people. It's much easier to act politically from the top because the organizing problem is much easier when power is concentrated. It's not concentrated on the bottom. If we're going to strike at the London School of Economics, lots of you have to walk out together. So there's an organizing problem. Then also, people have to withstand 
the countervailing power of the targets of their strike. That means they have to withstand the risk of being fired or be, if they are workers, of being evicted if they are tenants, of being blacklisted, of, in the case of the Occupy movement today, of having your credit rating go sour. I'll explain that later, too. And then also they have to endure the threats that the people against whom they are refusing will simply exit from the relationship. And then finally, in order to do any of this, typically people have to break rules. That means rules embedded in custom and often rules that are also laws. It is against the law for most public sector workers in the United States to strike today, for example. It has historically been, for most of American history, it has been against the law for any workers to strike, at least until the 1930s. Breaking the law, in turn, means that you are acting in the face of the legal majesty and the enormous coercive power of government, all of which makes it hard to tap interdependent power, movement power. It's hard, but it's not impossible. It's been done repeatedly in American history. The mobs of the American Revolution were acting in part against colonial elites and in part against the British crown and the British redcoats. The abolitionists who emerged in the 1830s, uh, usually men of religion embedded in the Protestant churches, uh, managed through their fiery oratory and more importantly, through the underground railway that they constructed, which bled slave property out of the South, managed to break apart a number of those Protestant churches and ultimately to break apart the intersectional parties that were governing the United States, precipitating the secession of the South, the Civil War, and the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment amendments which at least legally ended chattel slavery. The labor movement which had an episodic history from the late 19th century until the 1970s in the United States but reached its apex in the 1930s and its most definitive and telling tactic was factory occupations, which were against numerous laws. And of course, after a kind of compact with labor was reached in the wake of the great sit-ins in the rubber plants and the automobile plants of the United States, 
after a compact was reached and contracts were signed with the companies, uh, the Supreme Court and the Congress of the United States once again declared the sit-in to be illegal. Or the black freedom movement, where blacks in the South began by breaking local rules against Jim Crow uh, through the freedom rides and the bus boycotts, or the poverty protests of the 1960s, or the anti-war protests that followed, or the women's movement or the gay liberation movement, all of those movements managed to tap, activate, release this kind of interdependent power, which is, I think, the distinctive power of the movement. I think maybe it's also beginning to happen now. I think that a lot of uh, the growing episodes of protest in the United States argue, suggest at least, the growing recognition by activists and the people that they are organizing of the nature of movement power in a neoliberal capitalist society. And now I want to show you this, I want to turn to our most recent movement, Occupy. Well, as I said a few moments ago, Occupy began more than a year ago. It began with occupations of, the, of public spaces, actually small occupations, but in many cities. This phase lasted a couple of months. I think of it as the first phase. Maybe you should think of it as the fun phase. It was the moment when the movement uh, erupted with brilliant antics, brilliant wordplay, when its concentration was on communicating. Communicating in a certain sense to itself, or communicating to like-minded people, communicating to potential adherents, participants in the movement. And it was to that end that they occupied public spaces, that they said they were occupying Wall Street, that they used the word occupy, showing, it seemed, that they were different from the other movements that had organized demonstrations and marches that were always over when the sun went down and people got on the buses and everybody knew they would be over then, including the authorities. You just had to wait. Occupy said, no, we're here, we're staying. And then they said, we are the 99%, they are the 1%. I remember early in Occupy, it worried me a little bit that they really meant we are the 88% or the 89%. Only it took me a few weeks to realize they were right, I was wrong. Uh, and so they were doing what an emerging movement has to do at first, they were communicating, and they were communicating mainly with potential adherents, sympathizers, 
That communication effort also, it should be said, had some impact on political discourse in the United States. Uh, Lots of people, incredible numbers, told the pollsters that they were sympathetic with Occupy. And this is in a polity that the Tea Party had dominated until not a moment before, so to speak. And then during the political conventions, both the Republican and the Democratic convention, everybody was talking as though they had heard Occupy. Even the Republicans could only talk about jobs and economic recovery. The Democrats were even better, of course. Well, in short order, the encampments didn't last. They were cleared by municipal authorities. Maybe they didn't last because the antics and the rhetoric were so effective. But I think clearing the encampments may not have been such a smart move because what happened was that the Occupy activists dispersed, to be sure, but you know, with social media, everybody stays in touch all the time. So the Occupy activists went into the neighborhoods where they tried to work with homeowners who were underwater, for example, where they tried to work with small groups of poverty protesters. They went into the workplaces. After the hurricane that hit the East Coast, Occupy became Occupy Sandy. Occupy was everywhere working in the Brooklyn neighborhoods and in the Rockaways. But but mainly what Occupy activists were doing is they were trying to figure out how to go beyond their extraordinary communications success and how to exercise power, movement power. And here is the idea that they have come up with. They call it strike debt. (coughs) What they mean is that debtors should not pay the money that they owe to the financiers, to the banks and other credit companies. It takes recognition, this idea of the fact that student debt has now reached, in the United States, a trillion dollars. It also recognizes that 14 million homeowners are what we call underwater. That means that they owe money, a lot of money, on their mortgages and they're susceptible to foreclosure. It also recognizes the fact that credit card debt is approaching three-quarters of a trillion dollars. Now, but this idea is very daring. It's almost scary because it says that the enemy is finance capital and the laws which shield it. And it says that, you know, the idea that we have that 
lenders are the powerful ones and debtors have no power, that idea is not necessarily true because lenders don't have capital if debtors don't pay. Well, that's true in principle, but there are a lot of obstacles to pulling off a debtor's strike. Even a debtor's even obstacles when there are tens of millions of debtors. For one thing, debtors have to recognize that they have power over the people who lend to them. Now, usually we think of the debtor. Everyone thinks of the debtor, including the people who are the debtors, as a kind of hangdog little guy, right? Who can't hold his head up, who'd like to hide when he walks down the street. Debtors are paupers. Hard to recognize, hard to think that that person, if he can coordinate with other people who are debtors, has power over finance. And it's, but, and doing that organizing, that coordinating, is also hard in the face of shame. You have to shake the shame or you can't act together. It's also hard to act against the lender in the face of the penalties. You can be thrown out of your house if you don't pay the mortgage. If you don't pay your credit card, you'll get a bad credit rating. And that can be very, very difficult. That means that you can't get any credit anywhere. Or students, for example, student debtors, there are now, student debt has now reached, I think I said this, a trillion dollars. Well, student debtors are not allowed in the United States the protection of bankruptcy laws. Their earnings can be garnished without such protections. That makes it harder still. But just breaking the laws that say you should pay your debt, the customs, the religious rules that say you have to pay your debt, that itself is hard. But nevertheless, people are trying to organize such a movement. And they're trying to do it in different ways. I mean, one way that it has been tried and is still being tried is uh, to very old-fashioned way when people who are being foreclosed on losing their homes are being evicted the way that so far uh, they've tried to prevent evictions is by what used to be called mobbing, bringing a crowd to defend the evicted family or by using a crowd to move the evicted family back into the house or the apartment. Uh, That's, it's extremely hard to do for 
reasons that have to do with the fact that families are evicted one at a time, and one at a time is not good for mass actions. Maybe something could be done with this strategy if we began to explore not defending against evictions, but reoccupations of large numbers of houses that have already been empty. But there are other strategies that are also being explored. One strategy is to try to use the manifold complex rules to evade the basic rules about paying your debts. Uh, There are very elaborate legal procedures that are supposed to be followed by banks and creditors uh, before they foreclose on a property. They almost never follow the procedures. So some hardworking advocates are trying to use these uh, legal missteps to entangle the creditors or the banks in endless uh, procedural litigation. Another strategy that is being pursued, I like this one a lot, uh, is to use the fact that local governments and local special districts, do you have special districts in the UK? We have special district governments that are often responsible for particular local government functions and that float bonds in order to accomplish those functions. They may be responsible for maintaining the harbors or for running the railroads or for running even the schools. Well, both local governments and these special districts float bonds. That means they are debtors. And in fact, they are big-time debtors. And they are, almost all of them, uh, suckers or victims of the rating scandal known as LIBOR. So another strategy, and this is one that the organizers that I know like because they've been doing this for so many years, is to organize local pressure against these special districts and local governments to get them to play hardball with the banks to whom they owe the money. Uh, That has the advantage, of course, that it would be local authorities who would be in the firing line first and not ordinary folks. Well, we'll find out if a debt strike can work in time. Meanwhile, it's worth paying attention to the uptick that is occurring in the United States, fueled, I think, by Occupy, uh, in other kinds of protests, particularly, as I said earlier, in strikes. Uh, For example, this Friday in the United States is the Friday after Thanksgiving. And the Friday after Thanksgiving is the biggest shopping day of the year. Uh, It may seem to you to be early to do your Christmas shopping, not to Americans. 
everybody goes shopping on Friday. Uh, organization known as Our Walmart. It's not exactly a union, but it's a workers' organization of Walmart employee employees is planning a Walmart strike this Friday. It has now been called Black Friday. Now, I don't know what it's like in the, in, in the UK. In the United States, unions have tried to unionize Walmart and to do actions against Walmart for decades now. But just in the last few weeks, there have been 29 Walmart strikes. I think Black Friday just might come off. Well, we'll see. I think this great movement that I say has emerged is very important. I think everything that happens in the American future and in the world's future depends on it. But notice that I haven't said anything about elections or electoral politics. And how can we talk about American politics or UK politics? I spent a couple of hours today watching your House of Commons interrogate David Cameron and Ed Miliband. Uh, uh, how can you talk about politics without talking about elections, especially since in the United States we just had a remarkable election? Remarkable partly because we actually re-elected a Democrat, and remarkable also because the Democrat we re-elected was an African-American named Barack Obama. I have to tell you how relieved all my friends are, and me too. Uh, can you imagine what it would have been like if the president of the world, because that's who we elected, if the president of the world was somebody who was lassoed to the Tea Party? This could be grim. The Tea Party is the latest expression of American fundamentalism. We've had different iterations of the Tea Party uh, in the last 50 years, from the Christian right to the patriots to the militias to, but now we have the Tea Party brought to life again by the fact of an African-American president who, of course, they say is not American but a Muslim, and in only one step removed, brought to life by the looming threat that the United States, the American electorate, is undergoing a huge demographic transformation, and in a decade, a majority of American voters are going to be minorities. Uh, 93% of African Americans voted for Barack Obama, 71% of Latinos voted for Barack Obama, and partly thanks to the crazy lunacy of the Republican uh, candidates, 
a majority of women voted for Barack Obama. All this is very unsettling to a lot of people who are in the Tea Party. They are white, they are older, they're financially secure. They don't like the world changing. But I want to try to explain why this election, this recent election, and all elections in the United States, you can speak for your country, are very important to the fate of movements and why movements are important for the course that electoral politics takes. Usually when activists think about movements, they think that, well, there's movement politics and there's electoral politics. There are different ways of trying to achieve what you want to achieve. They follow different paths. The paths are parallel. They're not interactive. And movement activists, in particular, shun electoral politics, especially now. Uh, You sort of can't blame them. There's a lot about American electoral politics that is very disheartening, very corrupt. But nevertheless, in fact, in historical fact, movement politics and electoral politics are intimately interactive. One has everything to do with the other. In Barack Obama's first term, showed pretty clearly that he was crippled by the limits of the American electoral system. What does that mean? It means the distortions of our formal arrangements for representation, which lead to the underrepresentation of people and particularly poorer and darker people. It means also the enormous influence of unelected courts. It was the Supreme Court that opened the floodgates to corporate money in this campaign with its Citizens United decision. And historically, it was the courts that repeatedly struck down legislation to ensure labor rights. He was also limited by the huge lobbying apparatus that has grown up in Washington over the last 30 years or so. It is huge. There are many more lobbyists than there are people who are representatives in the Congress or their staff. He was limited also by the unprecedented $6 billion, and that doesn't count the hidden money, because now anybody can spend what they want on this past election, $6 billion. And that buys propaganda, oceans of propaganda. No wonder Obama was weak-kneed, a compromiser, compromiser. He might have been different if there had been a movement pressing at his back, lighting a fire under his heels. That's what made Lincoln the president who issued the Emancipation Proclamation. It wasn't Lincoln. 
It was the abolitionist movement. It wasn't FDR. It was the riotous unemployed together with the great strike movement of the 1930s that gave us the New Deal. It wasn't JFK or Lyndon Baines Johnson that gave us the civil rights measures of the 1960s. Lyndon Baines Johnson was a Southern senator. He took the magnolia out of his lapel when he wanted to be president in the face of a civil rights movement. We don't have great presidents excepting when we have great movements. But movements, we can't have great movements unless there's an electoral regime that is vulnerable to the constituencies that the movement organizes, that the movement sets in motion. The movement needs the rhetoric of a president that recognizes those are people whose votes he needs, those people who are beginning to stir. You know, Mitt Romney, when he was running for president, he ridiculed Barack Obama for his, what he called his hopey, changey thing. He meant the rhetoric of the 2008 campaign about hope and about change. Well, that kind of rhetoric is important in communicating to people that there really is some possibility for change in this political environment. Movements need that kind of encouragement. But movements also need uh, an electoral regime that depends on the movement's constituencies to survive. Because movements are defiant. Because they break rules because that's how they express the distinctive kind of power that is movement power. They need some kind of protection. And they only get that kind of protection when the elected regime also depends on the movement's constituencies. And the movement needs to be able to translate the movement's power into the prospect or the threat of electoral divisions. Uh, it needs to be able to translate the disruptive power of defying interdependent relations into the prospect of dividing electoral constituencies because it's in the face of that division that politicians proffer reform proposals. It's to heal those divisions, overcome those divisions that reform agendas are, uh, are announced. So we need the movement in the United States. Europeans need a movement as well. We don't know 
the UK needs one too. Uh, we don't know what the outcome will be. Movements develop in a terrain of, that is very uncertain. But listen, there is no hope that we will rein in international finance without movement power. And there is no hope that we will make the enormous changes that are required if we are to slow down and halt global warming without movement power. So we have to try. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for that wonderful talk. Um, what we normally do now is take questions for a period, so I'm going to start by just taking them um, individually and see how we go. Can I get an indication? Yes, the gentleman up the back. Hi, um, thank you so much for the wonderful. Just wait for the mic if you don't mind. Hi, thank you. Uh, thank you so, so much for that uh, wonderful and instructive and informational speak, uh, talk. Um, I'm wondering about your last point in terms of uh, how movements and the electorate need each other in terms of how um, uh, Occupy did not meet those uh, requirements that you set forth. Does that make sense? <laughs> well, no, that's a good question. I think Occupy has had a big effect on the election of 2012 even though most of the activists in Occupy scorned uh, electoral work and, in a way, scorned the election. Uh, they did not do door knocking. Uh, they didn't do robocalls. They didn't do any of the work uh, for the election of Barack Obama or the Democrats running for the House and the Senate. Uh, that other, other, other people who were worried with good reason, uh, that the lunatics would take over. Uh, they refused that work. But they did raise the issue of extreme inequality, and that issue very much informed the outcome of the election. So I'm, what I would say, I'm, I never, never uh, exhorted the Occupy people that I knew or met with to please work for the election because it's so important. Every election we, we always say, oh, it's such an important election. Uh, the president, whoever's president, is going to nominate two Supreme Court justices or whatever. You know, people get tired of that exhortation, especially when uh, those elected are so disappointing. Uh, I, 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 so I never, never said that. But I did think that the movements... Uh, activism, particularly its extraordinary uh, communicative skill, uh, was very important for the outcome of the election because it was perfectly clear to everybody that Mitt Romney was a plutocrat. Uh, it became clearer and clearer that he also was a, a, a liar and things like that. But the fact that he was a <coughs> businessman in the business uh, buying up distressed companies and sending jobs 
uh, elsewhere uh, became more and more important as the issue of extreme inequality uh, became more and more important. So Occupy was part of the election campaign, whether it wanted to be, intended to be, or not. And I think the people who scolded them were foolish. Okay. Um, can I have this woman here, and then after that, the woman in the middle? Hi. Um, over the weekend, there were two articles. I was surprised that there were two articles in the New York Times talking about. Can you hear me? I can't hear you. Hello? Is, is, um, can you hear me? Uh, it's not very loud. Hi. Is, is it better now? Is it? What was it? Yell. Okay. <laughs> Um, over the weekend, there were two articles in the New York Times on the same day about um, Greece. And um, I wonder if the distinct, there might be a distinction to, a, a big distinction to be drawn between, in, in the U.S. context, um, getting over you know, the private shame of private debt versus what's happening in Europe in terms of sovereign debt. So in the U.S. case, you could have an alliance between social movements Washington, D.C. against Wall Street. But in Europe, um, in a lot of ways, what's quite striking is that the state has become actually the enemy itself. So the state needs to fix, I mean, the state needs to be in alliance with um, constituents to, to, you know, obviously um, address international finance. But, but actually, a lot of the, the um, I guess, energy has now been focused on actually destroying the state itself. Well, there's also public debt in the United States, and the example I gave of uh, the role of local governments and local special districts as borrowers, big-time borrowers, uh, from uh, the banks is an example of that. Moreover, the uh, fight that's now unfolding in the United States uh, in, in Washington is a fight specifically over debt. The Republicans are arguing uh, that spending has to be slashed in order to reduce debt. Now it's true that um, uh, the debt levels of the United States national government are nothing like the debt levels uh, that have been reached by some European countries. That, that is true. But uh, well, I always thought that the possibility of a Greek default, even though it was scary, was something that should be entertained, if only because so much, so so many other relationships. Uh, would be rocked by a default relationship, relationships having to do with finance and the European Union. Uh, that, that was, in a way, the only power that the Greek government had, and it forfeited that power from the start. Uh, at the very least, it should have played hardball, and it didn't. Okay, this woman here. 
Uh, thank you, Professor. I live in Rome, Italy, and last year I participated in several demonstrations uh, regarding women's rights in Italy. These were nationwide, um, mostly protest walks and whatnot. Um, as you probably all know, Berlusconi was swept out of power, but not in relation to his various and very blatant um, misbehaviors. Um, it was more in regards to his financial mismanagement. And we can go on and on. Where is the critical point in a society um, where um, that anger that has been building up for decades and maybe even centuries spills over and becomes something that's uncontainable? Because I really felt last year that there was something different, that the world, or at least in Italy, things could change. But it all fizzled out in the end. It was very, very disappointing. I was just wondering what your opinion is on that. Well, I have an opinion, although it's sort of a question for a psychologist uh, 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 more than a political scientist. But my opinion is that people don't become angry when they think there's nothing they can do about their troubles. They become depressed. Uh, that when people, when people think that they have no grain, that they're that the because the har, the har, there was no harvest because there was no rain, and then again the next season there was no rain, and that was God's will, and nobody is responsible. I think they lay down and die. I don't think they protest. They don't become angry. They become angry when they think somebody is to blame, and something can be done about it. And they become angrier still if they think that they can do something about it. So I think the emotion of anger is part of the unfolding of protest action. It's not something that precedes the protest. It is encouraged and it grows with the protest. Okay, um, uh, Christiana here, and then this gentleman at the front. Hi, uh, thank you very much for the talk. Uh, I, I wanted to ask, how can we uh, study, you know, provide evidence of the impact of, of a movement you describe, which I very much uh, agree with, but I think is one of the most difficult things that scholars of social movements have, you know, um, <coughs> Is where it's the weakest part, I think, of a social movement's literature. And I think it's very vital to convince, in a way, more people to join in or to really express the interdependent power of a movement you talk about. Thank you. Well, we should study movements, and we should, uh, especially if, if, if we sympathize with those movements, but I think we should study the targets of the movement. Uh, I think we should study the banks and credit agencies and the rating agencies and the financial companies that have put people underwater and the schemes through which they do it, we should be part of the effort to expose uh, the lending in industry. Uh, that would be really useful, and not only in the United States either. Yes. Hi, Professor Piven. Um, thank you for the really interesting speech. Um, you began by talking about these different movements across the world, so in South America and in Nigeria, and you also later talked about how 
globalization actually helps people, well, there's a space for this interdependent power to be exercised through globalization, but can you see a space for these movements to organize across national boundaries and communicate together? And do you think there are any common threads that they can play upon to actually do this? Well, yeah, I think some of that has already happened. Uh, I think, for example, that uh, SEIU, the big American labor union, which, you know, it's a lot to criticize about uh, SEIU, but nevertheless, I think it's provided some of the resources uh, that have promoted the unionization of security workers in uh, South Africa and in India. So that's across national boundaries. Uh, I also think that the Justice for Genders campaign, which was, what, some 17 years ago now, uh, succeeded in significant part because European unions put pressure on the companies that owned the buildings that were being struck by the janitors. The janitors were actually striking against cleaning companies. The cleaning companies were not international, but the building owners were could have intervened, and they did not, until the European unions put pressure on those building owners because they were union. Those unions worked in the in buildings mainly in Belgium, actually. Uh, so there, I mean, there is some. Uh, sort of ricocheting actions that are possible and should be explored, uh, especially when there is a strike. Uh, the, we should have more sympathy strikes. In the United States, for example, the, it is against the law, national law, uh, to call for boycotts of companies that are being struck. Uh, that, that's the Taft-Hartley law, which was passed in 1946 to try to roll back the victories of the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, but doesn't mean that European citizens, workers, can't boycott those companies. So the very fact of internationalization of production and commerce uh, creates opportunities for uh, that kind of cross-hatch of act activism. And we should always you know, be absolutely clear about the fact that everybody, not everybody, but lots and lots of people are paying attention to what happens everywhere. In that sense, it is a different world. There always was some attention but it took so long for news to travel and even longer for allies to come and join the French Revolution. Uh, but now, it, it, Black Friday, this coming Friday, is going to be the scene not only of worker strikes, but of flash mobs all over the United States. How great it would be if it was also the scene of flash mobs at Walmarts all over the globe. Okay, um, this gentleman here. 
Hello. Uh, I would like to know what do you think about violence in this protest? Do they help? Are they inevitable? Do they deslegitimate this movement? What is your impression? Uh, I'm not a proselytizer for nonviolence. Uh, I think, however, that the question should be a strategic one. I think that, for one thing, most of what is called violence consists in property damage. Uh, I think I am offended by the gratuitous taking of human life, even human life of those you oppose. Uh, but that's not usually what protest violence consists of. It usually consists of broken windows. That's not a big moral issue to me. It's a strategic question. And I do think that protesters uh, m make themselves vulnerable to charges of violence, which offends people uh, when they break windows. Uh, think, for example, about uh, the Toronto meeting of the that occurred about two years ago, uh, the World Economic Summit. Uh, it was an occasion in which Canadian labor unions and community groups had organized a very large demonstration. I think that that demonstration was scuttled by the black bloc. Not that the black bloc was trying to scuttle the demonstration with their you know, window breakings and yelling and so forth, but they provided an excuse for not only the Toronto police, but the Teresa, what seemed to be the police of all the Canadian municipalities to descend on Toronto and disperse everybody including the massive demonstration of Canadian labor and community people. So I, I don't think that was a good strategy on the part of the black bloc at all. Uh, just, uh, you know, you don't, and we should be strategic, don't you think? Uh, we, we, should, we should consider what the sources of our power are and try to protect them escalate them, and deploy them. And the source, we don't have much power because we yell a lot, and we don't have much power because we break windows. Windows can be repaired. We have more power when we shut things down. We have more power when we threaten ungovernability, and that can be done, best done, by refusal, by withdrawing cooperation. Okay, yes. Um, there were obviously different uh, issues discussed within Occupy Circles over the summer as to what issues to focus on, right? And in the end, it turns out that debt is, is one of the big issues. Um, do you think that that is a more appropriate issue than, for example, inequality or welfare cuts or housing injustice? And if you think that is the case, is that because of a certain kind of tactical efficacy um, about the strike debt campaign, or is that because debt is more intrinsically related in a way to a lot of the issues that Occupy has raised? Well, I don't think that 
a good strategy uh, has to flow, necessarily flow, from which issues are the most important. Supposing we were to decide that probably the most important issue in the United States today is to get the United States out of the world, to get it to withdraw its armies from all over the world. That's a pretty important issue. But if I don't have a strategy to force action on that issue, I might put it to one side. I mean, I, the, just because it's the most important issue may not yield the most viable strategy for us, given who we are, where we work, where we live, who we talk to, what it's possible for us to do. Okay, um, can I just check whether anyone else wants to ask a, a question? Um, and Okay, we'll, we'll take um, Hillary. Well, it was a wonderful talk, as usual, um, as I know our speaker. Um, but I wonder if I could open another dimension, and that is the international dimension. And while you were saying you were no proselytizer for violence, I was thinking of South Africa and that incredible struggle. We had the armed struggle, the um, non-violent struggle that always made violent because of the killings by the regime in power. Now, the purpose of that was not to find any of the people in power running the government. It was to replace them and replace the entire system. And for a long while, South Africa achieved it. And from the world, the help was through boycott, disinvestment, and sanctions. And when it got to sanctions, it became really important. Now, I mean, there are other social movements at the moment, like the Palestinian Solidarity Campaign, which is running exactly set those same things. There's violent struggle. But the hope is to change something more um, than just simply a government. Well, a boycott movement of Israel. I would be in favor of boycotting uh, companies in Israel. Uh, the, what you and Stephen were trying to organize some time ago was a boycott of Israeli academics. And I have to say that I didn't inquire into it very much but I was a little bit concerned uh, that boycotting academics meant boycotting the critics of Israeli policy toward pa Palestinians. Uh, but if you want to organize a boycott of Israeli companies, of products that are made in the settlements, I think I would be wholeheartedly supportive of that. Is that responsive to your st statement? Well, my common experience was that when I went, for example, to do a PhD viva in Belgium in a philosophy department, they said, Hillary, what are you doing? None of us ever have been to Israel. None of us would ever go. Why on earth are you asking for a boycott? 
Well, so they thought that there was no point to the boycott because they weren't going to go there anyway? I don't... It was, they've been boycotting for years. I mean, many, many European academics won't go. And they just won't go, and they won't invite um, Israeli academics. I mean, it's just been a silent boycott. All we did was to make it a bit public. Well, I'm talking about the American reaction to your proposal to call for the boycott, for an academic boycott of Israel. I don't think that the... I mean, some of the reaction, of course, came from people who thought that action against Israel was anti-Semitic, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. Uh, but some of it was unease about the university focus of the boycott on the grounds that these were the most reasonable people in Israel. And uh, are you saying that's not true? Well, I don't think we... Let's not have a third round on on that topic. Um, I I would like to make a a statement at this point. I would like to say that I think um, one thing that we need to draw out of this that's of very general importance, and I hope we take away from it, is this point on which you ended, that there's a fundamental interaction between social movement politics and electoral politics. And I think you you made the case very convincingly in the case of the United States, but this is of a much more general significance. And um, parties on both those sides need to recognise that genuine social change is, is largely a result of that interaction. Having said that, I just want to end by thanking you for a, a wonderful talk. I mean, I think it was, it was characteristic of the talks I've heard of you, from you in that you have tried to analyse the great surge of movement activity which we see before us, placing it in the context of a deep understanding of history and at the same time deploying social scientific reasoning and, in fact, not shying away from it but making emphatic use of it. And all of it throughout delivered with what I think I could characterise as a controlled, deliberate passion for real social change. So thank you very much, Professor Piven, for coming and talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Robin.